You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post, continuing our recent discussions of the war in Ukraine. I'm pleased that our guest today is America's ambassador to NATO, Ambassador Julianne Smith. Uh, I'm Understandably, uh, Ambassador Smith has many engagements at NATO headquarters and she'll only be able to join us for 20 minutes. So I want to jump right in. Ambassador Smith, uh, thank you for joining us. Happy to do so. Thank you. So let's start uh, with the situation on the battlefield. Uh, Today's reports suggest that Russian forces are continuing to attack hard from three sides. Uh, Kiev and Kharkiv still uh, have not been taken, but the mayor of Mariupol in the south described the situation in his city uh, as Armageddon. I want to ask you, uh, Madam Ambassador, what your assessment, the assessment of your NATO colleagues is about how long the Ukrainians can hold these key cities. Well, first of all, let me say that this is not exactly going as planned for Russia's military forces. We're aware of the fact that they were under the impression that they would be able to come in and take Kyiv as well as other corners of Ukraine in rapid succession, and that somehow the people of Ukraine would come out and welcome them. Obviously, the exact opposite has happened. They have not taken Kyiv. They have not been welcomed. And Ukrainian forces are doing just a remarkable job. Their fighting spirit, their capabilities, their determination to push back against Russian forces has been nothing short of remarkable. And so I think at this point, what we're seeing is the Russians trying to determine what to do next. The plan is not unfolding as they anticipated. Unfortunately, what appears to be happening is that they're turning to these indiscriminate attacks on civilians. We've seen attacks on all sorts of civilian infrastructure, tragic images of schools being hit, hospitals, maternity clinics, the list goes on and on. So in terms of your question about how long the Ukrainian forces can keep at it, no one knows. We're all watching the situation closely, but it does appear that Russia is not going to succeed in its fundamental aims of taking over complete control of Ukraine. No one in Ukraine, the people will not let that happen. So again, we have been encouraged by what we've seen by the Ukrainian forces, but also appalled by the tactics that the Russians are now turning to. Facing the horrifying uh, tactics that you described, President Zelensky has asked, I think pleaded is probably a better word, for additional support. Specifically, he would like uh, the United States to support Poland's offer to provide MiG-29 jets to Ukraine that would help them, he says, uh, in fending off Russian air attacks. The United States, in fairly strong language, has described that proposal as not tenable, high risk, uh, and has essentially rejected it. Walk our viewers through the rationale for the United States deciding that's not a good idea. 
So just to step back to make sure that folks appreciate what NATO allies are doing, every single member of the NATO alliance right now is providing assistance to Ukraine. Almost all of them are providing lethal support. Some are doing it contrary to longstanding policies. Norway, Germany, others have taken decisions to provide lethal support, sometimes for the first time in many, many decades. We also have many countries providing humanitarian support as well. In the case of the particular situation with Poland, where Poland had heard this request come in from Ukraine about the Soviet-era MiGs, every ally is doing their very best right now to assess what more they can do to support Ukraine. Poland heard this request come in from Kyiv. They then tried to think through ways in which they could deliver on that specific request. They consulted with the United States. The U.S. has had many questions about it. The, the logistics of actually transferring these planes to Ukraine, it's very complicated. There are open-ended questions about pilots, about fuel, about missiles, and then just the sheer mechanics of moving them across a border. So you did hear correct that the Pentagon position on this, the Biden administration's position. We believe that this is not tenable. What we're looking right now is at other ways we can support Ukraine's security needs uh, in the area of air defense, looking at additional javelins, um, man pads, other ways that we can fortify them against these attacks. But this was not really a moment of disunity. This was a moment where we had a conversation and a debate about whether or not this was the right thing to be doing. But what what I can tell you from here at NATO headquarters is that the allies are united. We're all operating from the same central point. We all have the same intention, and that is to provide as much to Ukraine as we can in this moment. Madam Ambassador, would it be fair to say that some members of the alliance, such as Poland, would like to be doing even more than NATO is doing now? Well, look, everybody has a different perspective. Everybody is feeling this in different ways. Obviously, the countries that are right up against Ukraine's border, they're immediately in real time taking in hundreds of thousands of refugees. And we also have a situation where there are bilateral relationships. There's history, different cultures. So, of course, in an alliance of 30, everybody is determining in, from their own national perspective, the best way to support Ukraine in this moment. But what's been remarkable in the last three or four months is how united we actually are as an alliance. We've been able to take action in rapid order. We've been able to reinforce NATO's eastern flank. Many of us have moved posture into Central and Eastern Europe in the last couple of weeks. All of us are applying pressure on Moscow, and all of us are providing support to Kyiv. Let's talk about the question of what more can be done. Uh, last Saturday, traveling uh, with um, uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, near the Ukraine border, I watched uh, as uh, uh, wide-body jets from the United States and other NATO countries delivered the weapons you're talking about, javelins, stingers, uh, for transfer into, into Ukraine. Could you tell our viewers who've not been able to see that a little bit about this weapons transfer process? And you mentioned a moment ago that you're hoping to accelerate it even more. Tell us about the ways in which it might be accelerated, additional weapons or, or, or categories of, of weapons you're already providing 
uh, might be on the way. Well, there's really a remarkable story to tell right here about what Poland is doing. I had mentioned the fact that they're taking in thousands of refugees in real time and finding homes for these folks and helping them get settled after leaving Ukraine. But beyond that, beyond what they're doing with the refugees, Poland is playing an indispensable role in helping us coordinate the aid that folks are trying to get into Ukraine. But they're not the only country. There are a number of NATO allies that are stepping up and offering to provide assistance. Some countries are providing flights that enable aid to be moved from one ally to another to get closer to Ukraine's border. Some allies have offered to play a coordinating role to make lists of what Ukraine is asking us to do and then to cross-reference those lists with what allies actually have on hand. Other allies are coming forward and saying, how can we help do a better job in separating the human humanitarian assistance from some of the lethal assistance just to make sure that we keep those two tracks going in the safest way possible. And still others are providing perhaps not lethal assistance, but transportation to get the assistance from one NATO ally into another. So this has been really a remarkable effort just in, we're only in week three here, but to watch the allies come together and for each ally to step up and say, look, we can't provide the lethal assistance, but we'll We'll do the transport, or we've got the lethal assistant, but we can't get it close to the border, or we don't know how to get it in across the border. So watching the allies come together with those individual contributions, some of them have limits, some of them don't, and to come up with a master plan in literally days, it's it's been impressive, I have to tell you. That's a, a helpful summary, and, and thank you for that. I want to ask you about one particularly disturbing issue that's surfaced uh, in the last few days in my conversations uh, with British officials, with American officials, and, th and that is a concern that Russia, uh, with its offensive uh, slowed, not succeeding in taking its major targets, uh, may be considering the use of chemical weapons. I wanna ask you first whether NATO has uh, evidence that, that concerns it about about chemical weapons and and ask second if the russians took that extraordinary step of using uh, what we think of as a weapon of mass destruction what nato's response would be well, first of all, let me say that the Russians have made some very disturbing claims uh, about what either the United States or Ukraine is doing as it relates to chemical or biological weapons. Those claims are preposterous and even more troubling. We've also seen the Chinese actually echoing some of those claims. So we're worried about not only what Russia is accusing us of doing as it relates to CW and BW, but watching very closely to see how the Chinese are aiding them in delivering that message. What we've seen over the years is that Russia is actually the country that is the one that relies on biological weapons. We've seen them rely on biological weapons as it relates to attempted assassinations. You could think of uh, Navalny in particular, but others. Um, you could look at what they did and how they operated in Syria, which was horrifying. Their reliance on these types of weapons are in direct violation of international 
international law. So yes, we are worried when they he when we hear them making these uh, accusations. Sometimes what they do is they accuse us of something that they're about to do themselves and to use that as a pretext for some sort of other attack on their part. So we are all monitoring this carefully. We are messaging to them the danger and how reckless they're being with the language that they're using uh, as it relates to CW and BW. And in terms of what we would do, I mean, I'll, I'll let the president's words uh, stand for themselves. I mean, you heard President Biden today talk about severe consequences if Russia were to use these types of weapons. Let me ask you about another particularly disturbing subject, uh, and that is uh, the question of nuclear power plants. And I, and I want to pose the question, as it was sent to us by, by one of our, our viewers, um, Elliot Levine from Maryland asked the following, would destroying a Ukrainian nuclear power plant be considered an attack on NATO? Well, it's hard to get into hypotheticals. I mean, what we try to do here is we're thinking through all the potential scenarios of what we might face in the future. Obviously, we're looking at the recent fire at the nuclear power facility. We're looking at their takeover of Chernobyl, the way in which they've handled that. All of this is deeply troubling. What we want Russia to do is first and foremost to leave Ukraine and stop the war. But beyond that, we want them to ensure the safety and security of these nuclear facilities. We have urged them to refrain from any fighting in or around these facilities. And it's obviously a very, very dangerous game. Ukraine does have some of these nuclear facilities that have come awfully close to some of of what Russia is doing. So this is something the NATO alliance is monitoring and uh, will be continuing to message the Russians on in terms of the danger that it poses. Uh, traveling uh, over the last week, as I mentioned earlier with, uh, with General Milley, you could see in all of the Eastern flank states, the enormous military power that the United States and NATO countries are, are preparing uh, the estimates that I saw are that by the middle of this month, we'll have about 100,000, maybe more U.S. troops uh, in uh, NATO countries. I want to ask uh, Ambassador Smith whether there's more on the way after that as we try to shore up defenses and make sure that Russia is deterred from any attack on NATO. So on the NATO posture question, force posture question, uh, this has kind of a couple different components. So before Russia went into Ukraine, NATO took the decision collectively that it was time to begin moving posture into Eastern Europe for deterrence and what we call assurance. So we saw the United States, but not just the United States, we actually saw a number of other NATO allies step forward and offer troops or jets or ships. You saw a number of troops, the Netherlands, Denmark, France, Spain, the UK, a whole slew of countries coming forward and saying, how can we plus up what already exists in the eastern flank? So that was step one. Then after Russia went into Ukraine, 
evening, you saw the United States and other allies taking additional steps to move posture into the Baltic states, down into Romania, more U.S. troops into Poland. Again, we weren't alone in that regard. We had a number of allies come forward. Now what we're doing here at NATO headquarters is we're beginning another set of conversations, and that is irrespective of how this ends in Ukraine, there are bigger questions about how NATO should position itself and whether or not it's going to need to take the battalions that we created in the wake of 2014 after Russia went into Crimea and actually plus those up to something bigger. Um, those are the debates we're having right now here inside NATO HQ. Secretary Austin will actually be coming back to NATO next week. We're going to have a SNAP defense ministerial. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because we want to answer the question that you're asking. What should NATO's long-term force posture look like above and beyond what's already been moved into the region? So we'll have to come back to you on that, but that is the work that's ongoing here uh, in Brussels. And so I, my takeaway from that is that it's possible that we will be seeing some additional U.S. and NATO forces ahead. So, uh, Ambassador Smith, we have just a, a, a minute or so left, and I want to turn to the question of, of diplomacy. Um, in the last week, there have been signs that both Russia and Ukraine have, have slightly eased and modified their conditions for a settlement. I wrote this morning in the Washington Post about an Israeli initiative to try to bring the parties towards some kind of negotiation. Uh, I quoted a U.S. official as saying they welcome this effort to find an, an off-ramp, but that it's Zelensky's decision. Give, give our viewers your sense of where diplomacy stands after this week of some movement, uh, uh, even as the war continues. Well, much like what I just walked through on the posture front, actually, the diplomatic story is a longer one as well. We have spent the past couple months trying to urge President Putin to take the diplomatic path of de-escalation. And we did that in multiple settings, as you well know, and no doubt your listeners know, that we worked it in bilateral challenge, uh, channels. We had Russia here in the NATO-Russia Council in early January. We've worked it in the OSCE. Sadly, they didn't seize on any of those opportunities to move towards de-escalation, and they took the, the opposite path of conflict. We're now in a situation where we're still looking at diplomatic solutions. We're urging folks to sit down and, if they can, bridge their differences and find some sort of political settlement, all the better. Unfortunately, what we hear from the Russians often are a lot of claims that they're interested in a political settlement or they're interested in humanitarian corridors. But honestly, we haven't seen a lot of evidence yet that they're taking that seriously. And in fact, they continue, as you noted, to attack multiple cities across Ukraine and uh, in a way that all of us find to be deeply, deeply troubling. So we will encourage folks to pursue a diplomatic course, but we also have to ensure that we understand 
that the Russians sometimes say more than they're actually willing to do. So uh, we'll keep a close watch on this. Of course, we want to see a peaceful settlement. That's what should be happening immediately. And we've urged the Russians to stand down and find a diplomatic path out of this. Ambassador Julian Smith, I know that you have an important meeting you've got to go to at NATO headquarters. We're really grateful to you for joining us today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.